0: Uphold Parental Rights, Francis Desecrates Confession by Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara. In this 27th episode of Church and State, they discuss, in Texas, a judge supports parents' rights as frenzied liberals irrationally blather about the right to privacy and the right to contraception. And at the Vatican... Rumors fly regarding an unorthodox German bishop Francis may appoint to oversee the faith. And Francis shocks seminarians with statements that make a mockery of the sacrament of confession. His relentless dismantling of the church continues to gather speed.
1: Welcome to Church and State with Chris Ferrar and Brian McCall, which should be our last episode of 2022. Welcome,
2: Chris. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Uh, we're aboard the uh, sinking ship in both church and state. <laughs> Everybody get aboard the lifeboats while there's still time.
1: Although it's every time we meet, it's a different leak that seems to be sprung. But uh, and this one, actually, I think we have somewhat of some good news in the state side, at least. So we're going to talk about an interesting case down in Texas. It's a case that's being, I think, misreported in some ways about what it's done. I'm just going to read a headline from one of the liberal rags, Vox. They say, A notorious Trump judge just fired the first shot against birth control. You're going to love the headline. He's notorious because he worked for a religious freedom you know, firm that defended religious freedom. That makes him n- notorious. But in any event, the case is about birth control in a sense, but it's really about a larger issue. It's basically about a father who's challenging a federal government program that bribes doctors to give out contraception to minors without their parents' consent. So how is it really broader in that sense than contraception?
2: It's not really an attack on the legality of contraception being sold. It's more a question of the vindication of parental rights. There's a fundamental right of parents to direct the upbringing of their children. And, of course, in a public school or a public university or college, you can't even administer an aspirin to a minor without parental consent. (laughs) But somehow they're carving out an exception for abortion, contraception, uh, sex change operations. Any evil they can come up with is somehow exempted from the requirement of parental consent to surgical procedures or, the, in this case, the administration of contraception. So the case is really just about parental rights. Now, having said that, I read the Vox piece, which is full of liberal (laughs) cant, but there is one serious argument the Vox piece makes about standing. Yes. So there is a question as to whether the child of this particular father had any intention of seeking Title IX subsidization of contraception, to use contraception in any way, shape, or form. So the argument is going to be, there's no standing here because there's no showing that this program would actually impact this particular father in terms of his right to direct the upbringing of his daughter. But standing, as we know, being practicing attorneys, you teach the law, It's a very flexible concept. Yes. So basically, the question of standing reduces in too many cases to, do we really want to hear this case? If the court wants to hear the case, they'll find standing. Hmm. And if they don't, and, want to and hear I it, guess the them.
1: father's idea is, look, this is creating a situation where I don't know if I have standing or not because it's creating a situation where my daughter or each of anybody's children could just run and do these with these things without my knowledge. So my standing is it's posing this risk to my parental authority. But I agree, if they don't want to hear the case, it's something they can latch on to.
2: But the, uh, the reasoning is sound on the merits. Mm-hmm. Which is basically parents have the right to consent to the administration of medications, medicines, and obviously also contraceptives, as well as surgical procedures to minors. It's not simple. Yes. Locke's piece just ignores that issue He right. talks about the case as an attack on the legality of contraception. Although I should say that when Griswold versus Connecticut was handed down in the 1960s. It was not Catholic jurists, but Protestant no. legislators who had banned the sale of contraceptives to unmarried people in the state of Connecticut. As far as I'm concerned, the sale of contraceptives should be banned to court, but uh, we don't live in that country. So this is just a question of parental rights and nothing more.
1: Exactly. And as you say, I just want to highlight that. I mean, here's the irony of it. So under this federal program and its rules, this minor could go, you know, get a surgical procedure that they consider contraception done or be given some drug and then have a violent reaction, right, and have some, some kind of medical and then go to an emergency room to get treated and the emergency room wouldn't treat them for this complication without the parent's consent. Right? That's kind of the irony of it. Knowing that, I have a son who once was brought to the emergency room, was injured playing rugby, and literally they're like, oh, sorry, we, we need your consent so we can treat your son who's got a head injury. You know, that's just the the amazing thing about this, that the liberals don't see the hypocrisy of this. You know, you need the parents' consent to treat a complication from this, but not to actually get it in the
2: first place. Well, there's, there's always an inherent internal logic to the seeming inconsistency of liberals. So, for example, when it comes to the question of gender, they say that gender is a mental construct. You can be a male. You can be a female, you can be a combination of male and female, or you can be neither as long as you identify yourself as whatever gender or variation of gender you claim to be. So biology has nothing to do with it. But then when it comes to the question of race, well, then, biology has everything to do with race because you have black skin. That means you're entitled to special treatment, equity, reparations, preferential admission to colleges. So that skin color means all the difference. And that's a very superficial biological characteristic, whereas the sexual characteristics, secondary sex characteristics, are what St. Thomas would call inseparable accidents. Mm-hmm. They are intrinsic accidents to the gender. Whereas skin tone, uh, that can change over time and uh, can be altered even. But uh, this is the inconsistency with the internal logic beneath it, which is simply this, that if something advances an evil narrative then the principle that they're denying can be upheld. Mm. So in this case, biology makes a difference when it comes to race, but it doesn't make any difference when it comes to gender, because upholding biological differences as to gender doesn't serve the liberal narrative, whereas upholding biological differences when it comes to race does. Mm. So that's the internal logic of liberalism. The, the seeming inconsistency is actually underneath it all a consistent attack on what is good, true, and beautiful. And that's what we have here, an attack on parental rights. We can't have parental rights for the administration of contraception, uh, but if the child wants to take an antibiotic, it has to be right. parental.
1: Exactly. Well, there's what's behind the rage, and the Vox species is one example. There's, there's a lot of people raging at this notorious Trump-appointed judge. Really, they're raging at Justice Thomas, because I think really what they're lashing out at is a concurring opinion written by Justice Thomas in the Dobbs decision, the decision that overruled Roe v. Wade, in which he wants to be upfront about the inconsistency in jurisprudence. And he says, look, I agree completely. Roe was wrongly decided. It's not written in the Constitution. But it isn't just out there. It has a line of cases that took a turn. And Griswold v. Connecticut is one you mentioned where the court there found somewhere in the Constitution they couldn't quite locate a penumbra of rights that said Connecticut couldn't regulate the sale of contraception within their borders. And he rightly says, well, look, if if Roe's wrong, I think this court needs to look at the whole line that comes from it. And isn't that really, I mean, do you agree with me? That's that's what they're raging about. They're worried where this may go next.
2: Well, the idea that there's a right to privacy has pretty much been tossed overboard Hmm. in the Dobbs decision. But let's remind ourselves, though, that Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, hastened to add, "Oh no, no, we're not going after these other imaginary rights; just right. this imaginary right." Right. So yeah, there's no consistency there. And Thomas is calling for consistency. We have yes. to get rid of the invented right of privacy. And if you go to the Vox article, that's what they're screaming about. Oh, this judge has ignored the constitutional right to privacy, whatever that means. So uh, that right was invented by the court to justify the decision in Griswold and in, and later on in Roe. Uh, so we need to attack that and as well as the notion of substantive due process. What is substantive due process? Well, the due process clause supposedly guarantees that you will not be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law. You're entitled to a process. A hearing, a trial of some sort, Mm. with a finding before they take away your life, your liberty, or your property. But the court has twisted that into a substantive right, not just a process, but you actually have a right which is found in the Due Process Clause. And they say that these rights include, well, the right to marry and uh, other rights, which are considered fundamental. Now, Scalia came to terms with that. He said, all right, all right, now we have the Substantive Due Process Doctrine. And at least it says that the rights we find in substantive due process have to be rooted in our tradition as a nation. So that would be, among these rights, would be the right to direct the upbringing of children. Now, I have a colleague who says the Yoder decision, Yoder versus Wisconsin, which upheld the parental right to direct education, was a terrible decision precisely because it opened the doors of these other rights coming in. Whatever right you want to put into substantive due process would then become um, a substantive due process right. So we have the right to contraception, uh, the right to same-sex marriage, and then the only argument is, is this rooted in tradition? And, well, how long does it take to get something rooted in tradition? Fifty years? Sixty years? Thirty years? Forty years? A hundred years? It's a relativistic argument. So Thomas is right that this whole body of case law has to be called into question, but that's a massive undertaking. I don't see that happening.
1: Agreed. So far, he's the only one of nine who who seems open to it, the others running away from it. But again, I think it's part of what, you know, once they saw one pin fall, they're afraid that more will fall after it. But in any way, you know, congratulations to this uh, notorious Trump-appointed judge. He's he's, he's making a good stand. Whether or not it'll hold up on appeal, time will tell, but at least he did the right thing.
2: Uh, Well, don't forget the notorious Fifth Circuit which is denounced also in the Vox article. Oh, those notorious judges of the Fifth Circuit who always uphold by a rubber stamp the notorious decisions of this notorious judge. In other words, the rightly decided common sense decisions of the so-called notorious judge. And they don't like conservative justices or judges. They like yeah. uh, liberal judges. Those are the sensible ones, according to Vox. Well,
1: that's like you always have to watch their wordplay. It's like they always say, Dobbs' decision, which took away the constitutional right to kill your child, you know, yet, which it didn't at all. It said there never was such a right. It didn't take it away. I mean, that would be like saying Brown versus Board of the Education took away schools' right to discriminate against people on the basis of their constitutional right to discriminate against people. Right? I mean, imagine saying that. People say, what? There, there never was that right. It was wrong. But they have to twist the vocabulary
2: to get that's that. Why, it that's particular. why Dobbs Dobbs is actually a quite monumental achievement, because uh-huh. for the first time, a majority of the Supreme Court has said, wait a minute, we invented a right that doesn't exist. Right. We can't have that. You away know, with Roe versus Wade and away with Casey, by the way. Yes. The subsequent decision that upheld the core of Roe while getting rid of the stupid trimester framework. The Supreme Court for the first time has said, we just basically legislated from the bench and we can't have that. So that legislation's overruled or repealed. That's pretty monumental. It is. Now uh, we're in a situation now though, if any of the conservative justices should God forbid pass away while Biden is still president, or if a Democrat is elected again in 2024, we're going to end up with a reinstitution of the non-existent right. Mm -hmm. All it will take is the ACLU to bring another phony case involving abortion, and we'll we'll be right back to where we started. They'll find that the right has been reactivated, as it were. Right, right. Wow. Which shows that the court has become a super legislature. Yes.
1: Well, from the good news in Texas, we're going to maybe go across the Atlantic uh, to Rome, into Europe, and uh, see things are not quite so good in in the church. A story that's reported this week, I'm actually going to pull it up because there's an interesting picture. The dictator pope met with a group of seminarians for the diocese of Barcelona. There you see him, his rather basilica-like stature, (laughs) Uh, speaking to the seminarians. Well, what's interesting about this story, I found, and this is from Gloria TV, picked this up from a, a European news source. They actually say the Vatican posted on their website a beautiful talk that Pope Francis gave to these seminarians, talked about the need for prayer, for being immersed in the tabernacle. It was really, really quite beautiful. And then the story goes on to say, uh, actually, the publication was a sham. In the reality, the seminarian said he picked up the speech, said he didn't write it, threw it away, said it was boring, and just went off script.
2: (laughs) Of course, he thinks the faith is boring. Exactly. This is a a pope who doesn't do Catholicism. He just doesn't do it. It's not his thing. He has other thing in mind, his own version of religion.
1: Exactly. But more importantly than ditching his speech, what he told them was actually shocking. He basically told them that priests in confession should forgive everything give absolution even if the person has no intention of changing their ways. And then he goes on to say that a priest that doesn't give absolution when a person's still locked in sin and doesn't want to change their ways is himself a vehicle for evil, unjust, moralistic judgments. And then finally he went on to say uh, that he knew there are many priests who have fallen into grave sins. Perhaps a a reference to a really shocking case that came out of a Jesuit who was Excommunicated for absolving uh, his accomplice in a sin against the sixth and ninth commandment, that Francis immediately nullified. Uh, maybe oh, I didn't him. know that. Oh yeah, so this, this Jesuit priest was convicted by uh, a tribunal, which is very rare, for the canonical crime of committing sins against the sixth and ninth commandment with a, a nun, actually, and then absolving from those sins. So basically, say, hey, let's go do this, and I'll don't worry, I'll, I'll get you off the hook. Francis, again, here vaguely is referring to priests who have done things like this, but that's okay. They're with the people. And he specifically referred to homosexual and transvestite priests, that even they do these things, hey, they're with the people. Who cares?
2: Well, he's made that clear. His approval of sexual deviancy in various forms, he's made clear with a lot of conspicuous gestures, special papal audiences with transvestites and homosexuals, to show how much he uh, loves and approves of their way of life and God made you that way, he said to one homosexual, so I don't judge you, who am I to judge, etc., etc., etc. So we have a Pope who not only doesn't do Catholicism, he doesn't do sin, he doesn't really believe in sin, unless it's a sin that he views as contrary to God's will, such as not being vaccinated, for example. If you aren't vaccinated with the useless vaccines that are more and more being shown to cause terrible adverse side effects, including sudden death, well, you've sinned because you haven't, You haven't done the act of love that this holy, ignorant pope thinks vaccination to be an act of love. He knows nothing about these vaccines and their inefficacy. But he's decided that what the civil authorities command is a moral obligation. And if you fail to carry out that obligation, you've sinned. And also, it's sinful to be a member of the mafia. I think at one time he said people in the mafia are going to hell. So in hell, would there would be mafiosi and the unvaccinated, apparently. But the sodomites get a pass.
1: Exactly. But let's talk, I mean, at the heart of this doctrine is a real error here that a priest should absolve sin from someone who says, I'm going to walk right out of here and go commit this sin. I have no intention of stopping this. I mean, what that flies in the face of our Lord's warning to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more.
2: Well, also, it reduces the priest and the confessional to a rubber stamp. Whereas our Lord said, Whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain are retained. So he gave to his priests when he breathed the Holy Spirit upon them the power to bind and loose, including the power to bind in the case where someone is not penitent and is obviously just abusing the sacrament. Padre Pio famously denied absolution to people. It must have been a terrifying thing, by the way, to go to confession to Padre Pio, because mm-hmm. he had the power to read souls and judge your sincerity as a penitent. Now, you might think, as you say to the priest, I, I will amend my life, that you're probably going to fall again. That's different, mm-hmm. because you're thinking, I'll make an effort. I don't think I'll succeed. But the errant, the impenitent sinner who makes it clear that he's just going through the ritual to get his rubber stamp absolution, that's the kind of person that Padre Pio would send out of the confessional without absolution, because this person was making a joke of the sacrament.
1: I mean, again, you put a point on it, so you're living in adultery. You have to say, look, I'm going to move out. I'm going to move away. I'm not going to do this. Now, you might, as you say, think in your mind, I'm weak. I may get tempted one night to run back over there. I, I don't want to do that, but I, I realize that's a reality. I might, but what you're saying is I'm resolved right now. I am going to do you know I, I don't want to do that, even if I'm, my weakness is going to fall into it, but he's just casting the, all that out right away. Just oh, it doesn't matter
2: well, it's, a, it's a factory. You go in, you get abs, absolution, and it doesn't matter what your state of mind is, what your intentions are. so he, I'm wondering if he, why he even thinks confession is necessary? Yeah, because apparently, if you can be forgiven with no intention of changing your life, well, why do you even need the priest? God has already forgiven you. This is the Protestant notion. If you say to God, uh, "Oh, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I I accept you as my Lord and Savior," and then follow Luther's advice, sin and sin boldly, yes. because you know you're you know you're saved. Mm. Essentially, has a Protestant conception of sin.
1: Yeah, it's true. Instead of just confessing. God is your personal Lord and Savior, make your act of faith that Luther said that just took care of whatever you're going to do. It's like just walk in this door, go through the motions, and you're good. You're good to go and then go out and sin boldly. I mean, it's
2: really being unfair to some of the Protestants, to some of the right. most conservative evangelicals. They wouldn't agree with this nonsense that someone who has no purpose of amendment can be forgiven. Uh, you know, you have to walk the walk, as they say, not just mm-hmm. talk the talk. So some of the more conservative evangelicals are actually far more Catholic than, than the current occupant of the chair of Peter in terms of their approach to sin.
1: Well, and this isn't really a new idea. I mean, this idea permeates Amoris Laetitiae, essentially. It's what makes it possible for him to say you can go to communion when you're living in adultery.
2: Well, he's turned the natural law, which binds all men, not just Catholics, but every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth into a benchmark. It's an ideal that you should strive to fulfill, but if you can't fulfill it in your concrete circumstances, then you just do the best you can, which is a relativization of the moral order. It's an attack on the foundations of morality, which goes even beyond Catholic doctrine and threatens the edifice of morality in the entire world. I keep thinking of this caption in Denant's denunciation of John Paul II and his library of accusations, and the caption read, innovator, you will ruin the world. (laughs) I'm laughing, but it's not funny. But a pope has the power literally to ruin the world by ruining the church to the extent that it can be ruined in its human element. I mean, obviously, the church cannot ultimately be defeated. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But someone occupying the chair of Peter, as this fellow does, can do enormous damage, Mm -hmm. damage of the kind that we've never seen before in the annals of the papacy. We've had some pretty revolutionary popes over the past 50 to 60 years, but this pope is now attacking something as fundamental as right and wrong.
1: Yeah, very, very true. Well, before we go, our last few minutes, we have a a little rumor to talk about, but uh, (laughs) it's it's the Rhine flowing into the Tiber again. But although it is a rumor, it does seem to be pretty well sourced. uh, Mesa in Latina, who has been pretty good in predicting Francis's moves, as well as site News, have investigated this and said it seems to be legitimate. Now, to be fair, it's not done yet, and if anything, Francis is unpredictable. So he certainly could wake up one morning and change his mind. But as these places are reporting, uh, he apparently has in mind to get rid of Cardinal Ladaria, who is the current head of the dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, and replace him with Bishop Heiner Wilhelm of Heidesheim
2: oh, uh, in boy. Germany
1: to be the new head of the uh, well, used to be holy office, used to be congregation for the doctrine of the faith, now further demoted dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, that's under the dicastery for evangelization, essentially. But what's some of the problems with this uh, this German barbarian coming into the gates of Rome?
2: Well, obviously he believes in the end of priestly celibacy. He's talking about the female diaconate, just for starters, on the path to the fantasy of women priests. <laughs> I'm thinking of Father macelli 's book, Women, Priests, and Other Fantasies. And so if, if he puts this man in charge of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, it will become, to some extent it already is, the dicastery for the dissolution of the faith, which seems to be his mission, by the way, Pope Francis's mission, to dissolve as much of the faith as he can and reduce Catholicism to a sentiment of some kind, some vague religious sentiment uh, that uh, rivals liberal Protestantism, in its destruction of the doctrinal revelations of our Lord Himself, who, by the way, spoke of hell far more often than he spoke of heaven. So, if this man is appointed, that would be probably the apex of his of his meaning the Pope's modernist revolution against the Church. You'd have an ultra modernist head of the now dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. I mean, he's relentless. He's just relentless in his implementation of his anti-Catholic agenda.
1: I mean, it's interesting. It's almost an Orwellian revolution because remember in in Orwell's 1984, every social communist, uh, organ is of misname. It does the opposite of what it says, right? The ministry of truth spreads lies. The ministry of justice persecutes. So, I mean, we already have the Pontifical Academy for Life, which has been transformed into the Pontifical Academy for abortion and contraception. Then we, we have the, uh, dicastery for Liturgy, which is its purpose, instead of promoting liturgy, is to suppress it uh, in terms of the traditional mass. And now we have the congregation of the doctrine of the faith's purpose would be to undermine the faith. I mean, it is almost Orwellian in its reach.
2: That's that's a a very good point. And actually, the Orwellian slogan has become a hallmark of the post-conciliar revolution. We have slogan after slogan signifying exactly the opposite of what the words say so we have the springtime of vatican ii for example is the winter of vatican ii liturgical (laughs) renewal is the liturgical destruction the search for christian unity is a prolongation of christian disunity by telling those outside the church that they no longer need to belong to the church every slogan they've promulgated is actually a disguise for a meaning that is exactly the opposite of what the slogan says. And now we see that with uh, the Pontifical Academy for Life, which just said it's no longer the Pontifical Academy for Life. It's it's the Pontifical Academy of Anti-Life. He's putting one, one pro-contraception, pro-abortion figure after another into the Pontifical Academy.
1: Uh, absolutely.
2: It's really so staggering I- what's going on. It, it, it's just getting worse. I mean, he's always... So for years now, it's been obvious, even to people in the mainstream, that this pope is simply a destroyer. He's a destroyer. But now he's accelerating the process of destruction as if he thinks, I'm running out of time. I have to do as much damage as I can. In his perspective, he's remaking the faith into his own image of it, which he thinks he has the power to do as pope. Now, we, we sit here and we laugh at this uh, because it, it's, a, it's blackly humorous in a way. But we know and we're always confident that in the end he can't win. This is a crisis in the church, which reflects a crisis in the faithful. The faithful are getting the religion they want. But there's always a remnant that pursue the true faith as best they can. We're all sinners. None of us are saints. We don't think we're better than anybody else. But we know what the faith is, and we try to live according to it. And there was always that remnant in the church. He can't destroy it, no matter how hard he tries because our Lord's promise of indefectibility will always remain. But nevertheless, I mean, this is just unprecedented what we're seeing.
1: Well, as you said, the church can never be destroyed, but a lot of bad things can happen short of destruction. <laughs> so, And we're seeing that uh, clearly. But, again, as, as always, there's no reason. We know the victory is won. The, this battle will just go on, and we will see. Again, maybe uh, this won't happen. We'll see. But even if it does, the, the church will, the truth will not change, even if, this uh, german comes in and tries to claim that the the opposite we just need to turn to our blessed mother uh, who told us in fatima that uh, she was really given as the last remedy to the world and you know she is there and gives us everything we need to survive this crisis her rosary and her scapular that she holds out to the children to her call to penance and to sacrifice is is what we can do. Right? We can't appoint a new doctrinal head of the church, but we can observe the first Saturdays.
2: So, and there are always there are always good priests that you yes. can find, and there are always some good bishops, the noble exceptions to the useless time servers that have afflicted the church <laughs> over the last sixty years. So you can find the faith if you really look for it. And as I said, the faithful aren't generally interested in the faith any longer; they've fallen away. But those who want the true faith can still find it. Just a question yes. of finding the right parish, the right priest, the right traditional association of the faithful, the right traditional order. Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, the Society of St. Pius X, and the other organizations. Mm-hmm. And those are the places where we see growth in the church. Yes. Which is what Francis sees, too, by the way. That's why he wants to stamp out their very existence.
1: That's what scares him, absolutely. Well, there you have it, our last overview of church and state in 2022. And uh, we hope to see you in the new. The new year, 2023, and we will let you know what's been happening in church and state since, uh, since we talked to in the end of December. So have a good Christmas, uh, Chris, and we'll see you next year.
2: See you next year.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, And to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, Ora Pronobis.